morning. So I like uh, starting my messages, if I can, with a question. The question I would ask today is, why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did Jesus die on the cross? This is a relevant question for today. Somebody asked me that on Friday, believe it or not. It wasn't because I orchestrated him to do so. Uh, somebody asked that uh, of my wife. She uh, teaches at Awana's, and one of the kids in her, in her class, probably going to church all her life, asked her the same question. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Not a simple question. Not a simple question to answer. It says in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 22, for the Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, that is Christ dying on the cross, and that message to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. Speaking of the fact that uh, people do not naturally understand why Jesus had to die on the cross. It doesn't it's not something that the natural man understands. It's really something that God has to open the eyes of people to. It's not, not simple, not easy. And uh, perhaps to, to bring it home just a little bit, I remembered uh, shortly after becoming a believer in the Lord Jesus, probably within the same year, I watched a movie called Amistad. You can put the picture up. I don't know how many of you have seen that movie. It came out about 20 years ago. And uh, I'm sorry, I kind of skipped that one. Sometimes I prepare all these pictures in advance, and, and then later on I forget to even mention them. But uh, Amistad was a ship that uh, was used by, uh, I guess what you call them, uh, slave traders. So they would uh, bring the slaves from Africa or some other location and bring them to the U.S. to sell them in the slaves markets of the U.S., I'm not sure if that was a destination. There were other countries that had slavery at the time. But uh, that ship, somehow the uh, slaves managed to break free of their chains, and they killed the crew. And were trying to sail the ship back to uh, Africa, but uh, were caught by a U.S. patrol ship. And as a result, they were brought to uh, New England, where the slaves were put on trial for murdering the, the uh, uh, crew of the ship. And a, uh, there was a, a very um, a particular group of people that were trying to help them out. They were called abolitionists. So they, their goal was to, to uh, abolish slavery. And uh, they hired a lawyer to represent the slaves. Right, to try to help the slaves uh, in this particular uh, situation that they were in. And so there was a movie made about that. And, and of course, you have to realize there's going to be some artistic license in the movie. And uh, not every word spoken in the movie was really spoken in real life. So now we're transitioning from uh, something that happened about 200 years ago to a movie made about it about 20 years ago. And, and so we see the words that the director of the movie put in. But the reason I picked this little phrase uh, is because it kind of shows what people think about the cross today. And that's really the only reason I'm going to this movie. This is not a recommendation to go see it. You can't. But uh, 
there was this particular inter inter interchange of, of, uh, of words between uh, Mr. Baldwin, who was the, uh, the, I guess, head of this abolitionist group that hired the, the lawyer and Tapan, and I'm sorry, the other way around. Baldwin is the lawyer, Tapan was the um, abolitionist that hired him to represent the, the slaves. And Baldwin says, ignore everything but the preeminent issue at hand, the wrongful transfer of stolen goods, either way we win. And what the lawyer was saying there is, I found a technicality that will let us win. Because if you say that they were slaves, that means they were, uh, you know, they belonged to someone. Well, somebody was stealing them, and as, as a result, this is now stolen goods. And Tapan answers saying, sir, this war must be waged on the battle, battlefield of righteousness. Which what he meant by that is, I don't want to use some legal technicality, I really want to prove to the world that slavery is wrong. And because of that, these people should be allowed to go free. Right? That's what the abolitionists uh, felt. Baldwin answers, the what? He didn't understand. <laughs> Battlefield of righteousness? What are you talking about? Tapan, it would be against everything I stand for to let this deteriorate into an exercise in legal minutiae. Baldwin, Mr. Tapan, I am talking about the heart of the matter, meaning in his mind for the lawyer, the heart of the matter, let's get these guys free, right? I want to win this legal case. Tapan answers, as I am, this abolitionist, it is our destiny as abolitionists and as Christians to save these people. These are people, Mr. Baldwin, not livestock and therefore not stolen goods. Did Christ hire a lawyer to get him off on technicalities. He went to the cross, nobly. Do you know why? To make a statement, to make a statement, as we must. This is the words of the abolitionist. Baldwin answers, but Christ lost. And I remember at the time, as a new believer, that really bothered me. What do you mean Christ lost? And, uh, but... That's the position some people have today, right? They look at Jesus dying on the cross, and they say he lost, right? He, he may have had some purpose. Maybe he was trying to save the Jews from the Romans. Maybe he was trying to change uh, Judaism. Maybe he was trying to do one thing or another, and at the end, he got killed for it. So he lost. He didn't succeed in doing what he was trying to do. That's one view, right, that exists in the world. Uh, the other is what uh, Mr. Pan says, that Jesus died to make a statement. And at the time, as a new believer, it didn't bother me so much. Right? And, and, and we appreciate that there are certain statements that you can take out of the cross. For example, in one of our songs, we said it reveals God's love to us. Right? And it's true, the cross does reveal God's love for us, but didn't, Jesus didn't die on the cross just to reveal God's love to us. It wasn't just a way of saying, I love you. And so because I love you so much, I died on the cross. Right? That's not why Jesus died on the cross. It's true that that's one application of the cross. We can understand that this is a sign of how much God loved us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It does show God's great love for the world. But 
there was a reason why Jesus had to die, not just to show us that God loves us. So with that, let's go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews. That's where we've been uh, studying for the last half year or so. And uh, before we start today's text, as I, my custom is, I'd like to give an opportunity for anybody who has been memorizing our key verses for the book of Hebrews. We haven't got there yet. That's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We're still in chapter 9. But uh, still, has anyone uh, committed those verses to memory and wants to recite them to the congregation? Okay, I see Nessia raising her hands. So we will let her stand. Nessia, will you please do so clearly, slowly, and loudly? Very good. Just one correction. One correction. It was for the joy which was set before him. He endured the cross. And uh, forget the rest of it. But <laughs> very well done. Thank you, Nessia. Uh, a reminder that we're looking to Jesus. And um, interesting, in the passage, it talks about the joy that was set before him. Most people understand that as referring to the cross, as awful as it was. There was a measure of joy in it for the Lord Jesus, which we could hopefully appreciate today as we look at our passage. So we, we, are, um, we made it up to verse 14 last time. Sorry, up to verse 15 last time. So in theory, we should start with verse 15. But for continuity, I'll go ahead and, and, and back up to verse 13. So we're not starting in the middle of a, of a sentence or a thought. So Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here we start. And for this reason... He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. So we uh, started talking last time, or maybe a few weeks ago, about some of these um, terms. Uh, one of them is mediator. A mediator is somebody who mediates between two parties. And in the case of Jesus here as mediator, he mediates between God and us. Right? He is the mediator. The Bible says there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is our mediator. 
Next, uh, it mentions the new covenant, and we talked about also that one also. Now, a covenant is something on which a relationship is based. We often talk about the marriage covenant. Uh, I think I have a picture of that. And um, something that I didn't realize until I got married is that there's a form you and your wife will need to sign in order for your marriage to be legally recognized in the state of California. It's an agreement, and there's a certain you know, a text that goes along with it, and you can call that the marriage covenant, right? This is what you and your wife agree to do. Uh, this is what you and your wife agree to understand about what marriage really means, right? And you both sign the document. In the same way, there is a covenant between us and God that Jesus mediates, and there's a certain understanding in that covenant on what it is based, right? An understanding that God has, an understanding that we have, about what our relationship means and what it's based on. <clears throat> then it says here, and that's kind of the, where the new, uh, the new thought is starting. It says, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. And we will see death written all over the passage today. There's going to be a lot of death. And it says very specifically that Jesus had to die in order to be our mediator in order for this, the terms of the covenant to be fulfilled, right? It's part of what our relationship with God is based on. That's very clear uh, from this passage. And um, then it starts going into the reasons. Why is it that Jesus had to die? And I'm hoping that by God's grace we'll be able to reach an understanding of that as we look at it today. The first term he uses here, he says, for the redemption of the transgressions, the redemption of the transgression. He talks about a payment that has to be made. Now, uh, I don't know how many of you have purchased a house. I uh, purchased a house um, about five years ago. And, uh, yep, that's not my house, but it's a picture <laughs> of somebody buying a house. I don't have quite as nice of a picture, though I think we did get a picture of us, you know, standing in front of the for sold sign or holding a for salt sign. And that's very exciting. You know, in fact, it's um, been considered to be uh, an American dream, right? And everybody deserves to, to have their American dream fulfilled. And as a result, the government has all these programs to help you buy a house. And something that I had to explain to my kids is, you know what, I don't really own my house. <laughs> Who owns it? The bank, right? And uh, the bank is helping me buy it. It's going to take me 30 years, hopefully, if I'm on time with all of my payments, before I truly own my house. Why? It's because it's just so expensive, right, to purchase houses. Very few people can afford to really buy out a house in cash. The great majority of the people will enter some sort of negotiation with the bank, and the bank will foot off 90, sometimes more than 90% of the bill in order to help you uh, fulfill your American dream of owning a house. And as a result, we, we find ourselves in debt, right? And it takes us 30 years to pay off our debt. And if that's not enough, we get these phone calls or letters saying, would you like another $100,000 to put your kids through college or to buy a car or to buy a boat or anything you need? And don't worry about it because we'll just add it to your debt, right? You know, you own a house. And we think your house is worth enough that now you're ready to take more debt on it. And as a result, it'll take me longer to pay it off, or my payments will be higher, or 
the sad case, often people end up not being able to afford to pay that debt and the bank will foreclose on them and take the house away from them. Why am I saying that? Because we are under a debt as well, which uh, we could find described for us in Romans chapter 2 and verse 5. It says, it says in that verse the following, and I, you know, forgive me, I'm jumping into the middle of a text here, but Paul just finished describing in Romans chapter 1 a list of all the wrong things people are doing, right? Whether, you know, all the way from being unloving, not loving people the way God wants us to, all the way to murder. All these things are falling short of the glory of God, and therefore they are sins against God. And he says here, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, and what he's referring to is God reveals to us the fact that we're sinners. He reveals to us the fact that what we're doing is wrong, but we don't repent of that. We continue to do it. We reject the, uh, the caution that God is giving us, the warning that God is giving us, and we continue on with our hardness to live a life which is inconsistent with God, God's holiness. Our impenitent heart, we refuse to repent of what we're doing, and as a result, it says, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What that tells us is that God is building up or storing. God is angry against our sins, and yet he's not executing his wrath on us right now. I'm not experiencing <coughs> the wrath of God. Generally speaking, people in this world are not experiencing God's wrath against our sin. Instead, it's being stored up, right? God is holding it but it's being built up the same way a debt is being built up. And one day it must be paid, right? That's where the two uh, the analogies meet. You will have to pay, and uh, one way for you to pay is to go to hell for all of eternity. That will pay the price for your sins. But in this passage it says that, um, let me find it, that by means of death, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, death for the redemption of the transgressions. What that is talking about there is the fact that Jesus paid that debt that we owe God because of our sins. Uh, how do you pay? How do you pay the debt you owe God because of your sins? Well, let me show you how you don't pay it. A friend of mine last uh, week, or, or actually I think it was over the winter break, went to Zimbabwe. And Zimbabwe has had seen some high inflation. And as a result, you can have a $100 trillion Zimbabwean dollar bill. What does that tell you? It tells you that Zimbabweans' dollars are not worth very much, right? If, you have, if you, people can walk around with bills like that. In fact, I was told since then that they don't even use that anymore. Even that's not worth the money it's being printed on. And instead, you have to use American dollars in Zimbabwe, right? If you want to buy, people will just no longer accept. And the same is true when it comes to our debt of sin against God. There is nothing of value we can offer him outside of the death of Christ. We can't give him money. I can't, when I get to, you know, knock on heaven's door and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? What about this debt of sin that you have? 
And I can tell God, well, I'd like you to know I have a, a million dollar in my bank account on earth. Let me write you a check now. Right? Your money is not good here, right, is what God would tell us. Uh, or I can say, well, God, I'd like you to remember that, uh, that I did a lot of good things in my life, too. You know, can you count the number of times I walk an old woman across the street? No. Why? Because I did it so many times. Your money is not good here, is what God would tell you. That's, it said that earlier in Hebrews, that these are dead works, meaning they have no value in the sight of God. Isaiah tells us that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. There is nothing we can offer God. The only thing that pays for sin is death. And it says it in Romans, the wages of sin is death. It says it in Ezekiel, the soul that sins must die. Nothing but death deals with sin. It's the only currency that has value. Right? And so that is what, why Jesus had to die on the cross. Really the first reason and the one that would hopefully be the easiest to understand. Our sins must be paid for. It'll either be done by you in hell for all of eternity, or it was done by Jesus on the cross, and you choose which one you want to take. Right. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, uh, I'd like to back up to the verse, the verse before it, if you remember. It says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Some of you know I used to work at a company called TMPI. I worked there for four and a half years. And uh, if you would ask me what my job was, I would tell you that I am a janitor. I am a, a high-tech janitor. And I'll show you why. I think there's a, a picture I put. We would get parts coming out of the semiconductor industry that were dirty. What kind of dirty they have on them? Gold, right? You know, other, other things that people were depositing on top of their wafers or whatever semiconductor process they had. And at some point, it builds up so much on the parts of the machine where they're being deposited that flakes will start falling off and contaminate the wafers and the semiconductors that were being made, and that was bad. So they sent their parts to us, and we had to clean them off, right? How do you clean off gold, right? Do you have a detergent at home? Why? There you go. We could chip away at it. You know, Jake has an idea of what to do with the gold as well when he's done chipping it off. The problem is the shield is not going to look quite as good after you're done with it, and that part is probably worth I don't know, $5,000 or $10,000, right? So the people who gave it to me to clean, they want it back. So if I give it back to them with little chips, you know, I used to chip it off, they might say, where's my $10,000, right? And uh, maybe I got that much of gold out of it, maybe not, right? But they might want the value of the gold back too, right? This is complicated business. Right. But my job is I had to figure out how do I take the gold off this, whatever it is, aluminum, titanium, stainless steel material, without damaging the substrate, right? I mean, that's the issue. Do you know of a chemical that does that, that will etch one and not remove the other, or at least leave enough of the other so that it still has value to my customer and I can return it to them? So that was my job. 
Now here we have a different problem, and that's the problem of the, uh, of the contamination of sin upon me. So there's two things. In order for me to go to heaven, you know, we need to deal with this debt of sin, right? And we understand that Jesus' death paid the value to God of my sin to allow me into heaven. But what about the sin that's upon me? I need to, to, to if I, if I want to enter heaven, if I expect to be in the presence of a holy God, I can't be a sinner, right? It doesn't work. And uh, so he has to clean us, and that's what it was talking about there. It says, God will cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Uh, that verse talks about the other side of it. The first side of it we really have in Colossians 1, uh, 21 and 22. It says, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, <coughs> I don't mind saying you because it includes all of you, right? We were all once in that condition, right? We were all separated from God, enemies, Yet now he has reconciled, right? He brought us into a right relationship with God. How did he do it? In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. God, you need better glasses. You're looking at me and you're saying that I am holy, blameless, and above reproach in your sight. How can that be? The answer for that is in the blood of Jesus, or rather the death of Jesus. Right? It's that that God uses to cleanse me. It's that special solution that's able to remove sin without destroying me. Right? I mean, God can take care of my sin in hell, right? but there I will be gone at the same time. And yet, in the death of Christ, God provided that special solution, that special detergent, the cleaning agent that can take away my sin and leave me whole. In fact, make me whole. So, so that's, that's the side of it that God sees. And, but then on the other side, it does talk in Hebrews that he doesn't just want to make us clean in his sight. He wants us to feel clean. Right? And uh, that's something that you often hear in a testimony when somebody shares about how they get saved. There often comes a point where, you know, they'll describe it as, you know, they feel this burden lifted off their back. Somebody referred... Uh, in the Breaking Bread to the Pilgrim's Progress and how he goes up and there at the cross, finally, the burden rolls off his back. And as believers, uh, that's something that I think most of us can identify with. There was something that happened when we saved. We realized that <laughs> this weight came upon us, right? It clears our conscience, right? It's something, and it's something that God wants to do. And... Um, it's there in that same verse because it says um, it will cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. God wants us to serve him. But he doesn't want us to serve him out of guilt, right? And it's something we sometimes do in human relationship, you know, and my wife never does it to me, but, uh, you know, she could say, remember that time. You know, would you please do this? Right? I mean, it's good using this kind of guilt trip to mo motivate me, right? But God doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want us to feel guilty, and as a result of our feeling guilty, do something for him. He wants us to do it out of love. The same reason my wife wants me to do something for her. She doesn't want me to do it out of guilt, out of love. God wants a perfect sacrifice. 
And a perfect sacrifice cannot be motivated by a feeling of guilt, right? Only by love. God wants pure, undefiled love. And for that, he has to cleanse me from my guilt, right? If I'm, if I'm feeling burdened. Now, what about sinning after we're saved, right? Because I'll, I'll be honest with you, when I do something wrong, I feel guilty. <laughs> right? Even after being saved. Well, 1 John tells us, if, you could, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God has to do it again and again. But you know what? He's prepared. He has what it takes, right? The, the death of Christ is still efficacious today, and it can be applied to you today for any sin that you commit. And that is the only thing that gives me relief, right? If I have sinned against God and I feel guilty, you know what? Trying to make it up to God by then trying to do something nice doesn't work. It doesn't free my guilt, right? The only thing that does is coming to God and say, <laughs> I have sinned, right? What I did was wrong. And let him apply afresh to me the cleansing power of the death of Christ to free me from my sin. I have to do it again and again and again. And that's the only basis for our relationship with God, right? There's nothing else. There's nothing else that will once again cleanse me, once again bring me to, to uh, desire to do something for God out of love. I need, I need that continual cleansing that he gives us. Okay, so we need, the death of Christ is necessary to redeem us. It's necessary to cleanse us. And then finally, we have it here <coughs> in verse 16 and 17. That's kind of unique in the New Testament as a reason for the death of Christ, but it's included here for us. He said, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Let me give you an illustration of this. I have four children, four wonderful children. But uh, let's say one day, Nessie does something really nice for me, which, which she did today. You know, she, she saw me. I was there. I had some books in my hand. I need to do something. Daddy, can I take those for you? Nessie, you are child number one. I'm going to write my will right now. All my money goes to Nessie. <laughs> All right. But, you know, then Joey comes. And, uh, you know, he does something really nice to me, and I think about it. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to split it half and half between Joey and Nessia. But uh, then later on, you know, Eliana shows me one of her great art pieces, and I'm like, you know, I really appreciate this girl. <coughs> I'm going to give her 80%. 10% goes to Joey, 10% goes to Nessia. Why, why am I doing it? Because my will is not in force until I'm dead. Now, once I'm dead, it's, it stays. Right? There's nothing they can do about it. Right? It sticks. And that's what it says here about Jesus. Right? So Jesus and the Father had our salvation in mind from the creation of the world. In fact, it says that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But it wasn't finalized until Jesus died on the cross. In theory, now this is not the way God is, you know, Jesus could have come down to earth, looked around and said, you know what, I changed my mind, they're not worth it, I'm going back to heaven. Not die on the cross, no salvation offered to us, that's it. Right? Now we know that's not the way God is, but in theory he could have done that. 
But once Jesus died on the cross, there is nothing that can take away this covenant that God has made with us. Jesus has died. His son has died for our sins. There is no changing. There is no changing God's provision for us. There is no changing of a way for a relationship with God. It's been, it's been paid for, right? Jesus' death cannot be taken back. He died. You can't undie him. Now, he rose from the dead, right? But he still died. His death has not been taken away. So it seals it. Okay. Um, let's continue in our passage. So I'm, I'm kind of reading the passage today in, in sections because it's, it's not an easy one to understand, and I'm trying to go a little by little. So the next section we have is really what gives Hebrews its name. The, the, the letter to the Hebrews doesn't say to the Hebrews, it just says it in our own Bible, because as people read it, they realized this was definitely written to Jewish people. And this is one of the passages that shows you this must have been written to Jewish people because it wouldn't make sense for anybody else. Okay? But we'll try to, to understand it as we go into it. He says, therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. Remember, there was a first covenant, right? The covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. For when Moses had spoken every precept <coughs> to all the people according to the law, so here is Moses, he's, he's sharing with Israel the, uh, the covenant that God was making with them, and the people were agreeing, says everything that God says we will do. Okay, so that's, what, that's, that's the context of where all of this is happening. It says, so after he said this, after he, he spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats. So it means, you know what, some calves and goats had to die. You know, they didn't have this extraction of a liter of blood, we'll use it and we'll let the animal live. Whenever there was blood, there was death, right? The animal had to die. So they took some calves and some goats and they killed them. And Moses took the blood, it says, with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself, right? Here's this book he just wrote, recorded all of God's word. He's now sprinkling it with blood. And then he takes the blood and he sprinkles all the people, right? Why is he doing that? Saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. So the reason he does it is to seal the covenant, right? It's now irretrievable. Blood has been shed. An animal had to die for this agreement. Can you give life back to the animal? No, you can't, all right? And it's a way of sealing the agreement, right? There's no going back between our agreement with God, right? That was the purpose of it. Same as the death of Christ. Once Christ died, there is no going back, right, on this covenant that God is making with us. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. Now, I have a picture there. It may be slightly out of order of the tabernacle. Remember, we talked about it last time. I mean, there's this building of all these beautiful things, right, with God in the Holy of Holies. And, and what it says here, he took the same blood and now he's sprinkling. And you're like, you're ruining it. Look at these beautiful curtains we just made, these vessels of gold. Why are you getting blood over it? Right? 
Why is he doing it? Well, again, remember, we talked about it last time, that in the first covenant, God was putting certain pictures. And uh, he says, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. These vessels, right, were made with, uh, you know, the hands of sinners, like you and like me, right? They were the ones who built all these, all these uh, articles of gold. And uh, it was the means through which we were approaching God. They were contaminated by sin. They had to be purified. They had to be cleansed. What is the agent that cleanses sin? Well, death, right? So again, it's a picture of death. He took away the gold and all the beauty that we would assign these articles, and he puts blood on them. Why? Because it shows that they've been cleansed by God. They're now acceptable for God's use. What can make you clean again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It has to be blood that cleanses and purifies. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And uh, I think he's referring to the general offering here. It says in Leviticus 17, 10 and 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. This is Moses speaking to Israel. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Actually, it's God speaking through Moses to the nation of Israel. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. How were you right with God during the first covenant? It had to have been death, right? The death of an animal in this case. An animal had to die, the blood had to be shed, and it was the blood that made you clean. Really the representation of the death of the animal. Why? Again, if we go back to uh, Ezekiel, the soul whose sins shall die. Romans, the wages of sin is death. There is just no other way in God's economy to deal with sin other than death. There's no other way of getting rid of it. And therefore, it had to be so in the first covenant as in the new covenant. Hebrews 9, continuing in verse 23. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now you remember from the previous passage, we mentioned that all these things in the tabernacle were copies or pictures or symbols of what Christ was going to do. Right? That's why it says the copies of the things in the heaven be purified with this. It was necessary that the tabernacle be purified with the blood of, 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 of calves and goats. Right? That was necessary. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, really talking about the Lord Jesus and what the Lord Jesus did for us. It wasn't enough for us. You couldn't take the blood of, sin, of calves and goats and sprinkle me and make me good enough for what Jesus is preparing me for, right? for the heavenly things. Right? And he explains it here. The next verse, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. Well, that would be the tabernacle. Those were holy places, but made with hands. People made them, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So the blood of bulls and goats made it okay for the children of Israel to approach God through the tabernacle. It was good enough for us. But you know what? It's not going to get me to heaven. Right? For heaven, we need something better. And that's what 
the blood of Jesus did. It's, it, it's, the, it's better or greater or fulfills what was pictured in the first covenant. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. That's another difference. So in the case of the nation of Israel, you had uh, the, the blood that the priest would bring into the Holy of Holies. And if you remember, we said it last time, it was only once a year, only during the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, would only one man, the high priest, be allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. And he had to do it with the blood of another, right? The calves and goats. Right? That's what he had to bring. I think in that case it was just a goat, but he had to bring it to God, right? But he had to do the same thing every year, right? But that's not the kind of savior we're looking for. We're not hoping for someone who will go before God every year and sacrifice himself every year. We're looking into, for someone who can solve the issue once and forever, right? And so the difference is Christ just died once. There's no repeated offering. There was just a single death that Christ died. It says, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the age, right, he only died once, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that's the third difference worth noting between the sacrifice or death of Christ and the death of the animals, is the, the sin that had to be dealt with. So in the case of the, the death of the animals in the Day of Atonement, really, it was designed to, to address the faults of Israel for one year, right? Because you did it every year. So every year, the high priest would have to go before God in the tabernacle and says, yes, we have sinned as a people. And, but here is the offering, right? Here is, here is to get one more year of a most favored nation status with God, right? I mean, that's basically what the offering was. And, uh, but in the case of Christ, he had to deal with the sin of the whole world. Forget just the nation of Israel and the sin of all time, going backward in history and forward of history. Forget one year, right? And here was what was really going to deal with all sin. At the end of the day, we'll see it more next week or next time I speak. The, what was offered in the Old Testament was just pictures. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, right? But now Jesus in his death really dealt with the sin question. Put away sin. Sin. We're talking about all sin of all people in all time to put that away by his, the sacrifice of himself. Okay. How do we apply this to ourselves today? Verse 27, And as it is appointed for men to die once, to die once. Anybody here who's uh, not expecting to die? Raise your hand. No, it's appointed for men to die once. It's an appointment that God has made for you. None of us will escape that appointment, right? But after this, the judgment. There's a fire alarm. Do we need to evacuate, Michael? No? Okay. <laughs> Just checking. Michael is uh, 
in charge of a fire alarm. Um, when I was about 21 years old, trying to remember the age, 1996, 20 years ago, I think that would be true, 21 years old. Uh, I became interested in a young lady, I think. Most of you have heard this story. And uh, as a result, I started going to her church. And uh, at her church, I was um, provoked to consider the possibility that God was real and that uh, Jesus was the Messiah that God sent for the Jewish people. And uh, some people showed me prophecies in the Old Testament that convinced me that, yeah, Jesus is probably the Messiah. But I wasn't really happy, and I didn't really understand you know, why Jesus needed to be the Messiah, why we even really needed to have a Messiah. I mean, my understanding of a Messiah was going to be somebody who would come and fix this world. This world is clearly broken. Nobody is arguing with that. That's what we need the Messiah, somebody to come and fix the world. And uh, so I said, okay, you know, maybe Jesus is the Messiah, but, but uh, what, is he, what has he done for me? <laughs> right? I, I wasn't happy about the fact. And uh, I went to a Bible study, and uh, in that Bible study they were studying the book of Romans. And they came to a passage I could not understand. And as I was trying to understand that passage, I remember perhaps uh, going into some sort of a daydream, right, where I did not, uh, as if I was carried to another place. And in that place, I found myself in a courtroom. And I was the accused, and God was the judge. And for the first time in my life, I realized I was in trouble. And then it was as if someone stood in the back of the courtroom and said, I am willing to pay the penalty instead of this man. That's kind of strange. Who would make an offer like that, and why? And uh, I looked at the judge because I wasn't sure how the judge would react to an offer like that. <clears throat> and I saw the judge looking intently on me. And then I understood the gospel. And that was that Jesus already paid the penalty for my sin. God was looking to me to see if I would accept the payment that Jesus did on my behalf. And that's why it says, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation to those who eagerly wait for him. I was transformed by the understanding of why Jesus died on the cross. Because I realized that he loved me. And all of a sudden, that changed my attitude toward him. And I was looking eagerly for him. 
And I'd like to say to anyone here who hasn't yet accepted the offering of, of what God <coughs> did for them, that they can join those of us who are eagerly waiting for him. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. We know that this is something that is spiritually discerned, something that you have to reveal to the hearts of men about what it is that Christ has done for them. So we pray for everybody here who hasn't yet understood that meaning, what it is that Jesus did for them, that you will drive it home. But we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.